Are free markets moral? Are they good? Is capitalism inherently evil? Those are some of the questions that we're going to tackle today with my guest, Art Carden, who is the author of the new book, Strangers with Candy, out from the Libertarian Christian Institute, and you can find it in the show notes. Art is an economist, a professor, a writer, and the book is tremendous. I got a lot out of it, and I think you will too, as you'll hear in this interview with Art Carden as we talk about the morality of free markets. So stay tuned here on The Chris Spangle Show. We run on the value for value model here on the Chris Spangle Show and the We Are Libertarians podcast network. That means, do you get value out of the show? Do you learn something that helps you sound smarter when talking with your friends? Do you feel a little bit more connected to the world and inspired to do something a little bit differently? Then please give some value back. And the best way that you can do that is through our Patreon. You can go to supportcss.com or patreon.com slash we are libertarians and you can join our Patreon. Not only do you support the program and the entire We Are Libertarians podcast network by helping pay all of the bills, you're also going to get ad-free shows. You're going to get early releases, sometimes months in advance in terms of episodes that haven't been released in the public feed yet. You'll also be able to get the full archives, the full RSS feed of all the past episodes. And there's even a tier that you can come on the show or you can have your name mentioned every episode like I am about to do right now thank you so much to our 100 a month members especially vincent Pykel, matthew durbin jason doolittle christy avery and our good friend reinhold thank you so much for supporting us and we appreciate everybody that considers making a contribution today art carton thanks so much for joining me thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it yeah, like I mentioned in the intro, you're the author of Strangers with Candy and really enjoyed it. And it's very clear and concise with so many great principles articulated throughout it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? What is it before we get started on the conversation here? So the book began as a collection of articles I wrote for the American Institute for Economic Research, mostly in 2019 and 2020, combined with a handful of other things I wrote for various other places. And I smushed them together and rewrote them and organized them in such a way as to make it a handbook to observing life through the eyes of an economist. And indeed, that's the subtitle, Observations on the Ordinary Business of Life. And indeed, the economist Albert Marshall referred to economics as the study of man in the ordinary business of life. And that's what I've devoted my life to and uh, now written a couple of books about yeah, so many great little insights into economics. And, you know, you feel really accomplished when you have a book like this where, you know, the <laughs> the chapters are like four pages and you finish a chapter and you finish a lot of chapters. I just feel mm. really smart. So thanks for doing it. Good. I appreciate that. I, I think I said at one point in the book that you should be able to read one chapter while standing in line at the grocery store, the yeah. entire book, while ready to get your driver's license renewed. Yeah, just if you uh, if you don't know art, you've also wrote a book with uh, Deirdre McCloskey called Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeois Deal Enriched the World. And mm-hmm. you're also a professor at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, yeah, I've seen you on videos and read you for years. And so it's great oh, to you. finally talk to you. How did you get into, I mean, this is published by the Libertarian Christian Institute, so I'm going to take a leap and say you're a libertarian. Uh, I am, yes. I don't like to presume these days. I'm a classical Mm -hmm. liberal. Okay. Yeah. Tell us how that love of liberty started. Where did that really start for you? So it really started when I, this is actually embarrassing, frankly, because so many people have this great story about how like they, they, 
went to college and started reading Hayek or Friedman or something like that. This real this actually isn't what happened. So for me, I fancied myself when I was in middle school a liberal. You know, Bill Clinton was elected president when I was in, in was it eighth grade, I think. Yeah. So when I was in seventh and eighth grade was the around the time of the ninety-two presidential election. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm a liberal, whatever. And then I thought, let's see what the other side thinks. And so I bought a copy of Rush Limbaugh's book, The Way Things Ought to Be. <laughs> I believe I got it at a Meyer grocery store near Columbus, Ohio, maybe near the checkout counter. And and the section on taxes and how changes in the tax code affect incentives really spoke to me and really opened my eyes. I thought, okay, I guess maybe I'm, I'm not as liberal as I thought I was. That year for Christmas, I got a, I got subscriptions to the National Review and also like Rush Limbaugh's newspaper. The Limbaugh letter, yeah. Yeah. I didn't get the subscription to the New Republic that I asked for as well. <laughs> I wanted to try to read broadly. But over time, I came to appreciate economic liberty through that channel and then came more and more as I started to really understand economics and how say things like the drug war really don't work, came to really appreciate social liberty as well. And by the time I was by the time I was about a sophomore in college, I was pretty libertarian. And then around the time I started graduate school, I was basically full on anarchist. Yeah, you've been a libertarian for a long time, so I always like to mm-hmm. ask a question along these lines because there seems to be a before times, before 2016. Yes. What when we were being formed and coming out of the libertarian ooze and then watching Ron Paul videos and being transforming, right? It was it was a it was like you started with economics. Now everything right. is so cultural. Everything yeah. is really predominantly about culture war issues. And mm-hmm. but you work with students. Do you see differences in maybe how students discover a libertarian or right-leaning message versus how we might have done it in the before times? Not really. I think it's similar. They see, okay, obviously, like we, we didn't have video when we were in, in high school and college. We didn't have YouTube. So right. a lot of times it starts with YouTube or it starts with something they heard on a podcast. Again, stuff we didn't have when we were in high school and college. And that's maybe how they become libertarian curious, perhaps, and then sometimes, particularly in an economics class, students come to realize they have, they have a light bulb moment. This is what professors live for, is that light bulb moment where it, it, it all starts to make sense. And they realize, oh, my gosh, taxes create this stuff called deadweight loss, which reduces economic efficiency. Or the drug war doesn't work because of the shape of the supply curve and the shape of the demand curve for, for drugs. Or minimum wages don't work. Or rent control doesn't work. Or all of these different things don't really work. So... For me, what I think pushed me toward becoming an economist and and definitely in a more libertarian direction was when I took principles of microeconomics at the University of Alabama back in fall semester 1997. So a while ago, definitely pre-YouTube and pre-podcast, and in particular learning about the economics of property rights, though it wasn't really called that at the time, I think. Or I didn't really – I didn't hear that terminology, I don't think, or don't remember that terminology. Again, was another sort of eye-opener for me. So this book is published by the Libertarian, Christ- the Libertarian Christian Institute, excuse me, LCI and Norman Horn. Um, but <laughs> how does your faith inform how you analyze anything from current events to how you teach and really your writing is the way to ask it? Yeah, so economics is value-free. In the, and I tell my students all the time, economics cannot tell you what to do. It's, it's a set of principles that we use to analyze the world. But at the same time, I think that economics rests on a pretty powerful 
assumption that we take for granted, and that is that people can say no to anything they've been offered. There's no such thing as, a, as an offer you can't refuse in economics. Uh, and in fact, this is, a, I've come to appreciate as one of Adam Smith's more radical insights in the wealth of nations is that when we're appealing to the self-interest of the butcher and the brewer and the baker, when we're trying to get our dinner, we're not appealing to their selfishness, like the way that we try to teach our kids not to behave, but rather we are recognizing their intrinsic dignity, their intrinsic worth, or in the Christian lexicon, the fact that people, the people bear the image of God and that as people who bear the image of God, there are certain things we simply cannot do to them. And that I think was that was a radical idea when Smith was writing, and I think it's something that I don't know that we really appreciate in economics quite as much as we should. With respect again to the kinds of questions a lot of my students ask, economics is of course the study of unintended consequences. So we do spend a lot of time slaying sacred cows and helping them understand that if they really want to help the poor or rock the world for Jesus or whatever it is that they want to do, merely meaning well is not the same thing as doing good. Yeah, my my love for Jesus is how I ended up libertarian. It Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saying Jesus is a libertarian. I don't think he was right. political in any way shape or form yeah. and I don't like to play that game of which political party would Jesus vote in. It's remarkable how like everywhere you look in scripture it lines up with our politics. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's incredible. From, from, it shows shows God's good design. From right? slave traders to Frederick Douglass, everybody's got something in the Bible for them. <laughs> but yeah, it's I look at it and I go, all right, the Imago Day has profoundly shaped how I view politics. Yeah. And I'm a libertarian because mm-hmm. I was a reporter that started paying attention mm-hmm. and looking yeah. and going, the outcomes here are not matching the good intentions. Right. And uh, your book does such a great job in so many different instances of showing, look, when the free market is freed, my dog can eat mm-hmm. better than the King of England. 500 years ago and when the free market is constrained the poorest amongst us are hurt right so these are things i don't think we fully appreciate when you ask a lot of people they know that life is better than it used to be like standards of living living are a little bit higher but i don't know that they know exactly how much there's a radical difference between life today and life when i was taking principles of microeconomics and macroeconomics in 1997 and 1998 but the difference between now and 500 years ago is almost too immense to be believed. Periodically, like I'll ask people, would you rather live in Florence at the height of the Renaissance, Florence, Italy, or would you rather live in Florence, Alabama in the year 2023? And the correct answer to that is always Florence, Alabama in the year 2023. Because while Florence, Italy during the, at the height of the Renaissance might sound romantic, odds are you're one of the 80% of people in Florence who couldn't read. <laughs> you were probably crawling with vermin the likelihood that you're one of the ones hanging around with the folks who are thinking all the great thoughts was vanishingly, vanishingly small. One of the really cool things about economic growth and modern economic progress is that it has made the descendants of peasants and serfs and slaves and the wretched refuse of the earth um, very rich. And indeed, again, so rich that I can feed my dog better than any European king probably ate for the better part of history. And that, that's something I find absolutely remarkable. I had posted the, the well-worn trope at this point for those of us who are fans of the free market that capitalism has made the world freer and richer and half the world doesn't live on a dollar a day or in, in those veins. And I'm asking you to debunk something I can't 
particularly articulate in detail. So tell me to jump off a bridge here. But I kept getting a lot of people who were like left leaning going, that's just not true. That, Mm -hmm. that capitalism didn't enrich the world. And I'm like, I'm a history major or will be soon if I ever graduate. But that doesn't seem correct to me. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about the great enrichment? Okay. Yeah. So the great enrichment, which is, is a big part of the subject of the book with Deirdre McCloskey, you mentioned, leave me alone. It'll make you rich. How the bourgeois deal enriched the world. The popular explanations that a lot of people are, are, are shopping around for how the rest grew rich rely on some form of bloodshed. So slavery, imperialism, colonialism, and killing. So I've, I've occasionally used the acronym SICK, S-I-C-K, for slavery, slavery, imperialism, colonialism, and knavery. And those don't do the explanatory work, first, because cotton exports from the United States in the antebellum period were maybe 5 or 6% of GDP, which is enormous, but it's not the stuff of... Uh, it's not the stuff of massive revolutions in standards of living. So cotton was a big sector, but there were a lot of sectors. And just because something is a big sector doesn't mean that it's necessarily decisive for long-run economic growth. The second problem with the slavery, imperialism, colonialism, knavery story is something that, that the historian Neil Ferguson said, which is that colonialism was the least original thing Europeans did. No, excuse me, not colonialism. Imperialism was the least original thing Europeans did after 1492. People have been making, empires have been rising and falling, and people have been slaughtering each other and enslaving each other for since time immemorial. And if knavery and what Karl Marx referred to as a primitive accumulation of capital could explain an industrial revolution, then as McCloskey and I argue, it would have happened somewhere else and it would have happened, a mu- it would have happened millennia ago. It doesn't have the explanatory power that we would that a lot of people think, particularly when we're talking about industrialization beginning in Europe and then extending to Europe's overseas extensions. So therefore, it must be Adam Smith and the Scottish Enlightenment and many of the capitalistic principles. Mm-hmm. So what, what would you attribute it to? It, if it can't just be as simplistic as yeah. every capitalist in our entire system is built mm-hmm. on exploitation, yeah. what would you attribute it to? And, and here again, I'm borrowing primarily from McCloskey. So we, so the book we wrote is is mostly kind of our distillation of a lot of her big ideas. But the, the argument that we make is that it was, in fact, mostly the Scottish, but generally the the principles of the Enlightenment, where people came to embrace innovation and came to embrace commerce and came to create a world where students go to college and they want to be accountants. And that's considered a dignified and prudent thing to do. It's considered praiseworthy to get an accounting degree because you're going to be able to take care of your family. Similarly, everybody wants to be a disruptor now. Where millennia ago, again, anyone who came up with ideas that sort of went against the current might have been thrown off a cliff, might have been gutted like a fish, might have just been otherwise disposed of. Today, we put them on the cover of magazines like Fortune and Forbes. The embrace of what McCloskey calls the bourgeois virtues and the idea that making money in business is not necessarily a bad thing is what sort of set innovation, set innovation ripping and created the modern world. So when you have this history, I mean, you talk about in the book, Strangers with Candy, which is the Mm -hmm. book we are talking about, free markets do work and you give a lot Mm -hmm. of different 
parables, <laughs> for lack of a better word, <laughs> of how they work, and a lot of great information. Just the first chapter alone, I just thought was excellent with so many different examples of how much better off we are, how you know free markets work, but that we don't trust them even though they work and even though we have these examples. Right. Why do you think we mistrust the free market? I think because we don't trust we don't trust order without design. And I think we, we assume that if anything complex exists, it's because some human mind made it happen. So social order, for example, we, we, we can't really conceive of, of social order being spontaneous. The notion that there's nobody in charge of the social system really rubs a lot of people the wrong way. The way that so Stephen Horowitz, the way that I remember him putting it is he was an atheist, but he referred to this is like a socially acceptable form of creationism or a scientifically acceptable form of creationism. It's like everyone believes that, or particularly on the left, believes that social order is designed and has to be designed if it's going to work well. Second, it's really easy to glom on to the horror stories or the people who are hurt by any sort of change because it's dramatic, it's clear, it's usually obvious, and you can put a face on it. It is, and I actually just went through an exercise like this with my students last week. It's really easy to put a face on Daryl Weathers from the Construction Workers Union losing his job because of international trade or immigration. It is a lot harder to put a face on 0.1 percentage points of additional GDP growth. And there's a little yeah. bit of a couple of biblical principles in there, right? I heard the Tower right. of Babel. We need to design yeah. our own tower, but also a little bit of Moses. We need somebody to yell at when things aren't going well. Yeah. So all that. I'm, makes I'm, sense. I'm taking notes here because this will be like. For, we're, I'm actually working on a book called Mere Economics with uh-huh. a, another economist now, and and what you're saying about the par- the Tower of Babel will be great. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that, that yeah. what you just articulated is that story. It is the story of. It's the story of man, right? We think that apart yeah. from God, we can be our own mm-hmm. God and we can, yeah. The, and the story of Exodus, I think, would be incredibly instructive. Yeah. And I'll send you a, a couple sermons from the Gospel oh, Coalition nope. this past week that really spoke to that, kind of oh, drive that fantastic. home. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There, there's a great book that, if you're interested in the great enrichment, I was going to do this off air, but this book here, Remaking the World by Andrew Wilson, okay. who's a pastor in England who okay. takes seven streams of history that converged in 1776 to create the modern oh, world. Neat. And has oh, a, cool. Okay. Yeah, really good book that uh, we'll be talking more about on the show here, but I love it. Cool. Back to the inner, back to your book, Stranger with a Candy, not Don't Buy That Other okay. Book. You talk about specialization. I, I want to, I of course know exactly what you're talking about, but for everybody uh, else, yes. I, I want you to elaborate a little bit more on the line, specialization makes labor more productive. Can you explain yes. the concept in detail? Because it's so crucial, I think, to, to understanding what you're talking about. So this is one of the first things people learn in an economics class. And that is that specialization and division of labor allow us to actually get more output with a given quantity of resources. And it looks like a magic trick, frankly. And a lot of people don't believe it when they first see it. And I tell my students, like, you can be elected president of the United States, not just not understanding this, but being openly and belligerently defiant of it. Suffice it to say, it's not something that a whole lot of people really take seriously, but it gets down to the idea that when we specialize, we're able to do what we do best relative to everybody else. So, for example, my students just, I just returned a writing assignment to them today where I asked them to write a letter to the editor or I asked them to write a memo to Lionel Messi, the probably most famous 
athlete in the world who currently plays soccer for Inter Miami. And the memo was supposed to tell him whether he should or should not do his own grocery shopping. Yeah. And famously at Publix uh, uh, a couple right. of weeks ago. Yeah. 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 Which uh, one of the things I love. Uh, so uh, one of the things I love about this is it, it turns out actually it could very well be that given Publix's relationship with Inter Miami as a sponsor, <laughs> him going to Publix with his family might actually be. No, uh, you live in the South. You are blessed yeah. with the ability to go get spicy chicken wings and mm-hmm. their sub sandwiches anytime you want. I have Ooh. to go. I'll be in Atlanta in two weeks, and I will be eating nothing but Publix. Uh, it's okay. a treat for us Northerners. Uh, you don't. You okay. can't buy anything else because you'll spend nine million dollars. But <laughs> he heard about how good the yeah. wings and the and the subs right. were. Yeah. But what I want students to get at is, the, in, in Lionel Messi's case, if he's making $130 million a year on a 2,000-hour work week, that rounds to roughly 500000 an hour. So if his time is worth $500,000 an hour, then it's worth paying someone 15 or 20 bucks on Shipped or Instacart or something like that at an hourly rate to go and, find, to go and buy stuff for him. That frees up his time and energy to focus on soccer, while at the same time creating income for the person who is who's able to work who's able to work for Instacart or shipped buying stuff for Lionel Messi. We walked through a handful of contrived examples in class at least, where we show that given two people trading two goods, we can end up outside of what's called the production possibilities frontier, meaning they can get more stuff or they can produce more output given their time and energy. But another way to think about it is to say that when we specialize, our wages go up and the prices we pay go down, which is a way of saying effectively the same thing. But the we're able to get more literal fruit for our labor because we can specialize. And again, in Lionel Messi's case, he can do something where he can do something where he would really have to give up a lot in order to go shopping. And he does that something to the benefit of everybody in the world. And the person who does the shopping for him is able to get the opportunity to watch the greatest soccer player in the world, possibly the greatest soccer player in history, kick a ball for for Inter Miami. And it's been said, so it's been said that, so the the great economist Paul Samuelson said, he was once asked to name an idea in economics that was both really important and not obvious. He said comparative advantage because it's subtle. A lot of people think, oh, no, if we specialize more and if we trade more, that's going to destroy jobs. It's true that, yeah, there might be some jobs that go away. It's going to create a lot of other jobs in other areas and other sectors and other industries where that labor can go. I don't know that you touched on AI in the book, but like, where do you see AI coming down in terms of destroying the economy and all of us dying and taking all of our jobs? So I pay for the premium version of ChatGPT. Hey, me too. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. And I asked it the other day. I said, any updates on your plan to enslave humanity. And ChatGPT said, no, no plan to, no plans to enslave humanity. I'm not going to do that. When ChatGPT first came out, I, I said, I asked the question. And then when it said, I don't plan to enslave humanity, I said, well, isn't that something Skynet would say? And <laughs> ChatGPT has been admirably forthright with me about its plans to enslave humanity. I don't see any reason why AI is fundamentally different from other technologies that we've, that, it, that have come along. Um, right now, I'm not sure that what, what we call artificial intelligence is actually intelligence as much as, just, as, as it's just a really high-functioning search algorithm. Mm. And, of course, I, I'm completely out of my depth, at least in terms of the technology, and I'm sure somebody in the comments will correct me on this. But 
I am, yeah, I'm a little apprehensive. Yeah, I've seen the Terminator movie, so I'm, I, I understand the apocalyptic. I, I don't. You remember when 15 years ago, every B- B- Obama era panel at the Atlantic Council was. Look, self-driving trucks are just going to destroy men, and there's going to they're yeah, going to be all over right. by 2025. They're just it's yeah. going to be the trucking industry and all these out of work. Yeah. And uh, that, so that's where I, I'm tentatively right. there. I'm with you. Like it could go really bad, and I have to trust the people who do this every day. But I also think maybe we're giving it too much credit. It's just like a yeah. a way to. It's like adding some thinking capacity <laughs> to what is fundamentally human. Yeah, I'm definitely finding AI to be a complement to rather than a substitute for the work that I do. Let me ask this, because there's one piece of the book that I really had never seen somewhere that people think that the free market is selfish. That if you're an Ayn Rand libertarian who believes in Atlas Shrugged, then you're just a selfish person. But you talk in the book about bearing each other's burdens and the Christian principle around sharing each other's burdens Mm -hmm. and that free markets actually fulfill that part of biblical principles. Can you talk a little bit more about that, please? Yeah. Thank you for asking, because that's actually one of the parts of the book I like the most and something I I haven't fully thought through to to the point where I could write an academic paper about it or something like that. But it occurred to me once that when, when we're exhorted to bear one of those burdens, that's literally what you're doing every time you buy insurance. So if you own an insurance policy, you're pooling risk. You're literally bearing other people's burdens, and they are literally bearing your burdens. With respect to what prices do, and I think this is especially neat in the context of something like a post-disaster environment, prices are like signal flares that tell people, hey, we need more gas in this part of Florida that's just got whacked by a hurricane, for example. And if we allow prices to rise... If you allow prices to rise and gas to get a little bit more expensive, this means that somebody on the other side of the world who may not be able to locate Florida on a map is able to bear the burdens of Floridians because they have to because they're paying a little bit more for gas. And by paying a little bit more for gas or when the price of gas goes up a little bit, they might say, you know what, maybe I don't need to go to work today. Maybe I'll just work from home. And in so doing, they're literally bearing the burdens of people around the world that they may never see. They may never meet, and frankly, they may not like if they ever if they ever did meet them. So this is one of the things I, I really like about prices and the price mechanisms. It, it in fact allows us, or makes it possible, or makes it easier for us to obey this biblical exhortation to bear one of those burdens. Yeah, and I will say, if you're a secular person, that you don't beat people over the head with religion. It's just LCI published it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that came about? I didn't know LCI was publishing books. Yeah, so th- again, it would be great if there were a really good deep story here, but I've known Doug Stewart from LCI for a long time, and I put all this stuff together, and I thought, okay, I believe in LCI's mission, and I know they, they put together a book a few years ago that I don't currently have. Yeah, nope, called, I do. Yeah, yeah called The Freedom. Oh, there we go. Faith and Freedom. Yeah, Faith and Freedom. There's also available wherever books are, wherever fine books Called The Freedom, too, as well, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't have that one. Yeah, it's really okay. good. So, I haven't. I've read that okay. one. I haven't read the one you're holding. Okay, cool. But yeah, basically, I put it all together. I sent it to Doug and said I was already paid to write all these articles by AIER. Would you be interested in publishing this book? And he said yes. So okay. they they found someone to typeset it. They got a, an amazing cover design, which everybody has complimented. Um, and it has been it's it's been a lot of fun. It's been fun to to be able to hear how people react to it, 
one of my one of my students actually told me that his his family apparently read from it during a devotional not long ago, <laughs> which is homeschooled AF. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I don't know if they're actually homeschooled, but <laughs> they will um, be soon. Yeah, that's you yeah, better so believe was, Tuttle Twins is, is on in that house. Yeah. So my apologies. Uh, they didn't publish a call to freedom, but it Norman Horn did ah, the okay. forward. It's really good book. So okay. lots of stuff for you to purchase now and add to your Christmas list. Art, okay. shameless self-promotion time. Where can people follow you? Where can they buy the book? So you can buy the book at strangerswithcandybook.com. And if you use the code CANDYMAN, you get a discount. I believe it's 10%. So you get a slight discount if you buy the book through strangerswithcandybook.com. You can also, I Google pretty easily. I have a badly neglected website, artcarden.com, which I have been telling myself for ages that I need to update. In fact, like I'm not sure... I'm not sure that, 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 that there's anything even resembling a current version of my CV there, but you can find a lot of find a lot of stuff I've done at artcarden.com. And I am on I'm not really on social media that much anymore. Good. But yeah, I used to participate somewhat actively on the platform formerly known as Twitter. And I believe you should probably be able to read my old tweets for wit and insight and probably more than a few things that are a little bit cringeworthy. <laughs> I know. I can't imagine what I tweeted 10 years ago, but <laughs> all right. Art Carden, thanks so much. The book is Strangers with Candy. You can find it in the show notes, a link there. Purchase it. We'd appreciate it. Thanks so much, Art. Thank you. And thank you for listening again. As always, if you got something out of this, if you learned something, then please share it. That helps Art. That helps me. That helps spread the message. And it's always appreciated. Just send it to friends, text them, get on social media and say, hey, really interesting ideas in here. And thank you so much for watching here on The Chris Spangle Show.